Good. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. It is so good to be with you all today. I invite you to turn with me in a Bible to Exodus chapter 5. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's on page 50, 50, Exodus chapter 5. And I have to say, this is the coolest stage ever. I am so excited for Vacation Bible School this week. I'm sure uh, if, if you haven't signed up to help it, you'd still like to. I'm sure Carrie Wilson would be grateful for any helping hands. It'll be Monday through Friday, every evening this week, Vacation Bible School. But we'll be in Exodus chapter 5. And as you know, as Colin prayed, Pastor Colin, Pastor Sean is on sabbatical right now. He's doing well. So we look forward to his return in weeks ahead. I've been so blessed in the last several weeks by Pastor Colin and Pastor Mark as we've been going through the book of Exodus, looking at the Israelites oppressed in Egypt, and then God raising up this deliverer, Moses. Despite his reluctance, we saw last week, God has provided his brother Aaron to assist him, and now in Exodus chapter 5, we'll continue through this journey as this account unfolds. I'll read verses 1 through 2, and then I'll skip down to verses 22 to 23. Let's read Exodus 5. Later Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I shall obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Down to verse 22. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people. And you haven't rescued your people at all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for days where you are so real to us. You are so present in our lives. We know you. We experience your grace afresh. But there are also days where you seem absent. And we come frustrated, wondering, God, where are you? Are you there? What are you doing? Why is this happening? We pray this morning that you would speak to us in such a way that we would be prepared for those days that you would comfort us, even now, maybe some who are doubting now, that you would help us to know that you are present and working in our lives, even when it feels like you are absent. Please be with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. A couple years ago or so, I was at the Cincinnati Museum Center with my older two kids, Asher and Hadley. This is the museum in Union Terminal in Cincinnati. They have a great kids area. They have like kids interactive things. There's like a water table they can play with and dinosaur stuff. And then there's this whole kids play area. It's like, it looks like a forest. It's all inside and there's, you can like climb up through like trees and go through tunnels and on rope bridges and all kinds of stuff. So Asher and Hallie were just all over it. They loved it and they were not alone. This place was so packed. The kids everywhere, they're like ants crawling. I just, you could barely even see your own kids. Like, so I was just trying to keep an eye on my two kids. And so every once in a while, I'd say, Asher over there, Hallie over there, Asher over there, Hallie over there. So I could kind of keep track of what was going on. It was all good. But then it was time to go. So I had to collect my kids. I got Hallie. That was good. 
but I couldn't see Asher. And I remembered he was just over there a minute ago. I, that's the last place I saw him. So I was kind of looking around. And, you know, at first it's like, no big deal. There's all these kids there. He's going to pop up sooner or later. So I'm just kind of keeping an eye out. Where's Asher? Where's Asher? A little more time goes on and you start to get a little concerned, but still, this is okay. He's somewhere around here. So I start to kind of look into some of these places. I'm like crawling through these tight kid areas. There's kids everywhere, compact. I'm like, Asher, are you in here? I'm like climbing up a tree and across the rope bridge. I can't find Asher. So I go, I walk around and Hallie's with me this whole time. So we're, we're, we're together. We're walking around the interactive areas. I don't see him. So then I try to go back where I was before. Maybe I'll see him again. I still can't see him. And what was probably just a few minutes felt like an eternity and over a the course of a few minutes as a dad you start to like think the worst possible scenario like am I going to find Asher what has happened and everything that was on my mind about my plans for the rest of the day or whatever doesn't even matter anymore all I'm thinking about is I have to find Asher so I'm retracing my steps I'm like getting kind of frantic here I'm like this is horrible what has happened to Asher what if I never find him again and finally I kind of I'm walking and I see this staff member of the museum and I don't know if she just saw my facial expression, but we caught eyes and she said something like, are you missing a child? And I was like, yes. And uh, so she said, come with me. And she brought me to Asher and there was Asher. Tears were coming down his eyes and I was so glad. At that moment, nothing else mattered. I found Asher and it was okay. And we hugged and it was all good. That was like one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. But I think about what was it like for Asher from his little perspective? He was probably like five. Like, what was he thinking? Was he thinking, my dad's gone. I'm never going to see him again. Dad is totally gone. What's going to happen to me? Do you ever feel that way with God? I know I do. Are you ever like, God, did you leave? Are you not here? Are you absent? And over time, you start to think, were you ever even real in the first place? You start to doubt your faith. Like, God, do you even exist? And unfortunately, a growing number of people in our society are coming to that conclusion. Well, God must not be real. In his book, uh, The Great Evangelical Recession by John S. Dickerson, he recounts an account of a guy named Scott. He says, Scott Miller always recited his Awana Bible memory verses with uncanny speed. The boy had a way with scripture. He attended Christian school and was raised by evangelical parents who have been faithful in their 35-year marriage. They took him to church every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday. Scott, now 30, doesn't believe in God anymore. The last time he set foot in a church building was for a wedding two years ago. He doesn't think the Bible is believable or reliable or relatable to his life. Chances are you know a Scott of your own, a young evangelical prodigal. Scott is one of about 260,000 evangelical young people who walk away from Christianity every year. He's one of the roughly two in three evangelical 20-somethings who abandon the faith by age 30. Research indicates that more than half of those born into evangelicalism are leaving the movement during their 20s, and the majority of them never return. This departure figure has never been higher in the United States. The number of those who return has never been lower. Is God absent? Is he even really there? How about you? How about you this morning? Are you in a place where you're doubting, you're asking God, are you even there? Are there circumstances in your life that have led you to believe, God, do you even care what's going on to me right now? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a passage, Exodus 5, at a time where it looked like God wasn't there. It looked like God was absent. And Moses and Aaron, they could have come to the conclusion that 
God's absent. He's left us. He's not there. This morning, I hope as we go through this passage that we'll be able to draw together three observations, three action steps that, that will give us help, that can show us what to do when it appears that God is absent. So this morning, my hope is that first, we'll just kind of briefly walk through the whole chapter. We'll make some observations along the way in Exodus chapter five, and then we'll step back and make three observations of what we can do when it appears that God is absent. Let's jump now into Exodus chapter five. I'll start by reading the first five verses. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. They answered, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from their labor. Okay. So previous to this, last week and the week before, we saw when God called Moses, when God raised up this deliverer Moses to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites who were in bondage there. We saw last week from Pastor Colin how he wasn't so cool about this whole thing. And so God provided graciously his brother Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, to come along and assist Moses. So now for the first time, Moses and Aaron, they're approaching before Pharaoh. I love this note from the ESV study Bible. It says, to someone as powerful as the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, Moses making a request in the name of the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, would look ridiculous. What God would choose to be identified with a nation of slaves and then also presume to make a request from the king of the nation that has enslaved them. This is silly. Given all the other equally true things that God could have told Moses to say to designate him, he is evidently making the point to both Egypt and Israel that he has chosen to identify with the people of his covenant even when they appear to have little value in the eyes of the nation they serve, except as forced labor. How ridiculous is this scene? The king of Egypt, almighty Pharaoh, in all of his wonder and power, and then little Moses and Aaron coming in and saying, um, we met this God and he says, you should let all the Israelites go free. This is so silly, but this is the beginning of a conflict that we'll see in the weeks to come that's not merely between the Israelites and the Egyptians or between Moses and Pharaoh, but this is a spiritual battle. Moses uses the Lord's name here. You'll see in your translation it may render the, the, the Lord with all caps, L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. That's that personal name that God revealed to Moses. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. I don't know Yahweh. This is a spiritual battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt who Pharaoh represents. Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go. So instead, he makes the people's work harder. Let's look what happens in the next few verses, starting in verse 6. 
That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men, then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says, I am not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt, gathered stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when the straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So Yahweh had given his command to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh responds by saying, no, and he gives his own command. He says, those people who you want to set free, their work's going to get harder now. They have to produce the same amount of bricks, but no longer will they be provided with straw. Straw was used to make these bricks stronger. And notice Pharaoh's, his method here. Verse five is eye-opening. He says, impose heavier work on the men, then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. If Pharaoh can make the Israelites have more work, make it harder for them, maybe they'll stop thinking about this whole Yahweh thing. Get, get Yahweh out of this picture. Well, of course, what Pharaoh has done here is made this task virtually impossible. They failed. They couldn't complete this amount of bricks. And so these Israelite foremen, a group who were set over charge of the Israelites, they were beaten. God, where are you? God, are you absent? What is this? We were supposed to be delivered. Why are you making our lives harder? Where is God? The Israelite foremen now, they seek help from Pharaoh. Let's look now at verses 15 to 18. So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. But he said, you are slackers, slackers. That is why you are saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foreman, they sought mercy from Pharaoh. He showed no mercy. Let's finish the chapter here. The Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. One more verse, first verse of six. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let you go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. It's interesting, the way that Pastor Colin left us last week, the end of verse four, uh, the end of chapter four, 
the people, the elders of Israel who Moses and Aaron had brought together, they were excited about what, was God, what God was going to do. The people believed, we're told, when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery. They knelt low and worshiped. They were excited. They were grateful that God had come to rescue them. But now, at the end of this chapter, chapter five, the Israelite foreman, they're saying, may God judge you, Moses and Aaron. You've made this horrible for us. Moses, he goes to God and he's frustrated. Can you relate to that today? I think about Asher in the museum when I was with him. He was thinking maybe, Dad, where are you? Are you even here? I think about that guy, Scott, that we read about. He gave up on God a long time ago. God, where are you? Why aren't you coming through? And what about you this morning? Are you thinking, God, where are you? Now let's take a moment and let's step back. Let's observe the whole chapter and draw three action steps, three ways that we can respond, what we can do when it appears that God is absent. The first, when God appears to be absent, worship him. When God appears to be absent, worship him. You know, we see in this chapter, Exodus chapter five, that God desires worship. It's interesting, the first verse, when, when Moses and Aaron, they confront Pharaoh, the reason why they tell Pharaoh that they want the Israelites to go is so that they may hold a festival for Yahweh in the wilderness. Again, down in verse three, they say, please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God wants worship. And we see in this passage, there is a battle over our hearts of who we will ascribe worth to. There are days where it's easy to ascribe worth to God, like the elders at the end of chapter four when they, when they bowed because they knew that God had come to rescue them. It looks good on those days. It's easy to worship God. But there are days where it's hard to worship God, like the Israelite foreman at the end of chapter five, when it looks like things have not unfolded pleasantly for them in that moment. And they say, God judge you, Moses and Aaron. It's hard to worship sometimes. But even in those hard times, God still deserves our worship. And in those hard times that it's hardest to worship, that's when the worship is most meaningful in a sense. That's when it shows where we really are. Are we just worshiping God because it's good today, he gives us good things? Or are we faithful to him even when we don't know what's going on, when the story is not finished yet? In that moment when I lost Asher, I'd like to say I was still worshiping God. I was saying, God, you give and you take away. I worship you no matter what happens here. But I was not doing that. I was so frantic. I maybe prayed to God. I don't know what I was doing. I, was, I couldn't think what to do in that moment. We have a friend, um, sweet, sweet couple. They just had a baby. And their baby, just weeks old, has a life-threatening condition. And they're searching for a bone marrow transplant. Please pray for this, this family. They don't know what's going to happen to their baby. They, the story is not finished yet. In that moment, they're still choosing to worship God. They don't know what's going to happen, but they still choose to worship God because he's worthy of worship on the good days and on the hard days. On the hard days, it's easy to be like Pharaoh and to have this heart that says, no, I don't know the Lord. I will not follow you. But may we have a heart that's soft and worshipful towards God, no matter what happens. So what is our worship life like personally? What is it like? Do we have a daily habit, even just a short period of time each day where we can find a quiet place and bow before God? 
I remember this time I was in high school, I was trying to do a routine devotion. I would come off the bus, I may have been junior high, high school, come off the bus, walk home, and I would try to spend just a few minutes with God in my room, read the Bible, do something like that. Over time, it got hard and it felt repetitive. I remember this one day, I did not want to go hang out with God, but I did it. I went in my room, I closed the door, and there was a song on the radio. It was Oh Holy Night. It may have been Christmas around that time. And there was that line about fall on your knees. And for some reason, something just clicked in my brain and I was reminded in that moment of worship, God, you are worthy of all my worth. And so I knelt on my knees and there was nothing special about what I did. But in that moment of worship, it was like God revealed himself to me. I think sometimes when we are not in the mood to worship, when we don't see what God is doing, it appears that God is not there if we do step forward in faith and say, God, I worship you anyway. It seems like God will meet us there and become real to us. So what's your personal worship life like? And not only that, corporately, here, what a blessing it is to meet week by week and worship together. May we continue to do this, to be together. As we sing these songs, they encourage us, each other, and they're a blessing to God. So when a God appears to be absent, worship him. Even when he appears to be absent, worship him. But don't just stop there. It's not only worshiping him but it's also trusting in him. When God appears to be absent, second, the second action step is trust in him. When Asher was there, uh, when I lost him at the museum, he did the right thing. You know, parents always teach their kids, if you get lost, just stay where you are, we'll come back. And that's what he did, he stayed there and that was great. I think about our spiritual lives, like when it seems like God is absent, do we leave the faith? Do we say, okay, I'm done there? Or can we trust that God is going to come back? That he hasn't left, he hasn't disappeared. We may not feel him in the moment, but he's really there and he's gonna come back. The Israelites had this moment here where they were oppressed and it looked like things were getting worse and not better. They had a choice to make. Would they continue to trust in the God of their ancestors or would they say, this is it, I'm out of here? We have these choices to make. I wanna throw out three encouraging truths. This is kind of like three subpoints, ABC of, of point two here. These are just things that we can remind ourselves, drawn from this passage, in the moments where it feels like God is absent. Because sometimes we may not feel like God is there, but we have to remind ourselves of truths that are not based on my feelings, but actually are true. So three little sub, sub points, ABC, quick trust, encouraging truths from this passage. The first is Human suffering doesn't indicate that God is failing. Human suffering doesn't indicate that God is failing. The Israelites were oppressed, and then it gets worse. They had to work harder. The Israelite foremen, they're beaten. So that means God failed, right? It's not uncommon in our culture today to hear people say things like, look at all the suffering in the world. How can you still believe in a good God? Well, if we look at the Bible, we see that human suffering was not a part of God's plan, his design in the beginning. Everything was very good when God created the earth and the world and the cosmos. But it's from that first sin that Adam and Eve committed that flowed toil and pain and death and suffering. And we see then in the context of this broken world, this sin-filled world that we are a part of every day, God at times chooses to use human suffering for his purposes. A few examples, think of Job, the suffering, the testing that he went through was not a sign that he had sinned or a sign that God had failed, but God used these tests for his own purposes. 
New Testament has a lot to say about suffering. James opens up his book by saying in James 1 verse 2, Consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God at times uses suffering to produce fruit in our lives. It's not an indication that God has failed. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, he speaks about this thorn in his flesh, this challenge, this suffering he's experiencing. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, starting verse 8, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There seems to be this pattern that in our weakness, God's strength shines through the most. Romans 8:28, such a comfort. It says, we know that all Things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The ultimate example that we see God using human suffering for his purposes is at the cross, where God would unfold his redemptive plan in the lowest place as a place of execution, of death on a Roman cross, where God the Son incarnate, Jesus, would die for our sins. So the Israelites, they were suffering. But did that mean God had failed? No. And maybe you are suffering right now. Maybe you know people who are suffering right now. Is that an indication that God has failed? No. Even though God may look absent, even though suffering is very real, God has not failed. Second, quick, trust encouraging truth to help us trust God when he appears to be absent is simply that God acts with great care. God acts with great care. He is patient He doesn't act rashfully. The Israelites, their suffering was very real, and they could have concluded that, God, what are you doing? Do you even have a plan? What's going on here? Uh, Verse 23 of Exodus 5, Moses said, Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for his people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. But then I love how God responds in verse 6. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And I think that might mean that at least part of God's purposes and what he's allowed to happen to the Israelites is that he wants to make it very clear that if the Israelites are going to be delivered from Pharaoh, from Egypt, it will not be because of any strength or persuasion power that Moses has. It will only be because of a mighty act of God. God takes great care and precision in what he does. A New Testament example of this, different subject matter, but same idea of God's great care, we see in 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter, Peter is addressing this issue of, of God, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? We thought he was going to come back. Have you failed? What's going on here? Peter says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet is not an indication that God's plan has failed. In fact, rather, it shows that he's taking great care because God wants to allow this time for many to come to put their trust in Jesus and experience repentance. So in our lives, we may have moments where we think, God, why didn't I get that job? God, why haven't we been able to have kids? 
Why haven't you healed me, God? Whatever God is doing, you can know, you can trust that God is working it for your good if you were a follower of Jesus and that he's doing it with great care. God isn't absent. We can still trust him. What God does, he does with great care. The third subpoint, subpoint C under this, under this umbrella of us being able to trust God when he appears to be absent is simply that we have every reason to trust God. In other words, he has never given us a reason not to trust him. I think about Moses. He was disappointed. He was frustrated. God, you were supposed to deliver people right now. Why didn't you do this? But when you really think about it, Moses didn't have reasons to think God was unfaithful here. God had given these signs to Moses that Moses and Aaron had been able to do. They were indications that God was with Moses and Aaron. God had even told Moses in chapter 4 that Pharaoh would not let the people go. This is what God had told Moses would happen. In moments, we get excited. We, get, we, we, we think, God, why? What's, this hap- what's happening here? You are failing us. But really, he's never given us a reason that we can't trust him. The same is for us today. Think about the Bible that we have. It comes under such scrutiny. But think about the prophecies, for example, that were written about Jesus hundreds of years before his life, his death. But they speak truth about who Jesus is. Think about the reliability of the New Testament, the manuscript evidence, the incredible manuscript evidence for the New Testament contrasted to so many other ancient writings whose evidence doesn't come close. Think about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how that adds such support for the trustworthy translation of the Old Testament. Think about the fact that the Bible, though to us it's one unified narrative, it was written over hundreds of years in different languages by some people who never knew each other, but it shows one unified redemptive story culminating in Jesus. We don't have any reason to doubt that God is faithful. We have every reason to trust in God. I don't know about you, but my favorite, my preferred method of communication is not texting. I mean, of course, there's the whole like finger problem. That's kind of hard for me. But just the fact that I can't know the expression, the, the, the tone with which this message is coming to me. Like I might read one message and think, is this person angry at me? Are they happy with me? Like, how should I take this? I don't know. It's hard for me to understand. But if I know the person, let's say like Heather sends me a text message, I know that she loves me. And I can let that knowledge of our relationship fill in the question marks for me. I know that you're not angry at me, which maybe she is, but I know that ultimately, (laughs) ultimately she loves me. We have this relationship. And so if I don't understand everything, I can know that it's still good. you're, You're still worth trusting in this relationship. Sometimes with God, it appears that he's absent, but we know him. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've experienced his grace and forgiveness, we have every reason to trust him. We know that he acts with great care. We know that he has not failed. So in those moments where it seems like, God, where are you? Instead of letting yourself kind of just drift into, well, I guess you failed, remember to trust in him. How do we do that practically? Here's just a couple ways. In those moments, and even not in those moments, fill your mind with truth about God. This is a book uh, by a guy named Robert L. Plummer. It's called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. I love this book. It's easy to read. There's 40 chapters for each of these questions. Easily accessible. And he goes into a little more detail about some of those things I was mentioning about the New Testament reliability, the Dead Sea Scrolls, prophecies of Jesus. Learning stuff like this can be an anchor for us in those times of God feeling absent. 
So remind yourself to trust God, but also remind others. I think about the guy we read about, Scott, who grew up in church, but he left the faith. What if he had been in a life group? I don't know if he was or not, but what if he had had brothers in his life who knew him, who saw him slipping early on, who could have poured truth and reminders into his life, who could have spoken directly to what he was going through? Maybe his story wouldn't be that way. That's why we have life groups. That's why we live together, because we need to remind each other of truth. I need it. We all need it. There are times where we need to be on the receiving end, times where we can encourage others. But encourage one another to trust God. So when God seems absent, what do we do? One, worship him. Two, trust in him. And three, finally, rest in him. When God appears absent, rest in him. Why did God allow the events that we read about in Exodus 5 to unfold the way that he did? Why didn't God allow Pharaoh to respond immediately and let the Israelites go? Wouldn't that be the best thing? Wouldn't that be so cool? I don't know if we totally know the answer to why God allowed things to unfold, but as we said a moment ago, perhaps one reason was so that it would be very clear that it wasn't because of Moses, it wasn't because of Aaron, it wasn't because of any persuasion or power or technique they had, it would only be if God would come and release them. Uh, chapter six, verse one, but the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. It is so clear that it will be only if God comes through that this deliverance will happen. And so Moses and Aaron's job is to rest. They may not know how this whole thing is going to unfold. They have some information from God. They don't know how this is going to work out, but they're called to rest, not in themselves, not in their, their techniques, but in God, in Yahweh, in the almighty God. And the same is true for us. Just like the Israelites were in bondage, we are in bondage, a bondage that we cannot overcome on our own. We're in bondage to sin. We are trapped. We've fallen short of God's glory, and there's nothing we can do to set ourselves free from that. As much of a ridiculous moment as it was for Moses to ask Pharaoh for freedom, how much greater is it for us to think that by our good works or something that we could overcome the judgment and death of our own sin? The only thing that we can do is rest, is rest in a God who can undo the brokenness that we can't undo ourselves. God calls us to rest. I love this contrast. Pharaoh, he sees the Israelites as labor. He calls them slackers to be oppressed. He wants them to work, but God calls them to rest, to rest in the work that God would do for them. Of course, for us today, we look back at the cross as the finished work that we couldn't have done on our own, but Jesus, the pure, spotless Lamb of God, God's Holy Son, lived a perfect life on this earth and died for us. He did the work for all those who would trust in Him, and now we're called to rest, to rest in Him. There's a guy named Roger Patterson. He works for Answers in Genesis. He's an author and teacher. He wrote an article where he shares his experience of coming to rest. He says, I grew up as a Mormon. Although I was far from God for many years after leaving Mormonism, in time the true creator God opened my eyes to the gospel. I became excited to share the good news of the forgiveness of sins available only in Christ. Yet having been trained in the sciences, my natural inclination was to use lots of evidences and arguments as I talked to Mormon colleagues, friends, and students during and after my years as a public school teacher. 
I studied materials that showed the contradictions between the Bible and the LDS scriptures and had lists ready to pull out when the young elders knocked on the door. I was ready to point them to the contradictions in the Book of Mormon and to the failed prophecies, inconsistencies, and truly bizarre claims of their modern prophets. I had prepared several slam dunk arguments, sure, to make them realize they were following a false prophet and trusting in a false Jesus. But was this method effective? While these tools are useful in certain circumstances, a few years ago I had a shift in my thinking. At first I offered a few of those contradictions and doctrines that clearly contradict scripture, but now I suggest setting those things on the shelf in favor of another approach. Let me explain. If you know Mormonism only from the happy family commercials, you have a skewed view of what life is like for many Mormon families. Mormonism is based on earning righteousness, earning righteousness for salvation. In 2 Nephi 25-23, a verse in the Book of Mormon, they are told it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. This idea of working to earn God's favor and to earn salvation flies in the face of the biblical passage like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which tells us that our salvation and favor in God's eyes is based solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ, not on our own works, regardless of how much we do. The Mormons you meet are likely weary of trying to meet an unattainable standard in order to be accepted by their families, their church, and their God. And reading that, I'm not trying to pick on Mormonism. No other religion or philosophy offers the rest. No, no religion or philosophy could offer the rest that the biblical God offers. In the gospel and the cross, we see the perfect holy justice of God and his grace meet together through the finished work of Jesus that we can rest in. So how do we do that practically? How do we rest in God when it seems like he's not even there, when he feels absent? Well, remind yourselves of true things. Even when we don't feel like it, even when you feel unloved and unworthy, know that God loves you. You can see that demonstrably at the cross of Jesus, not based on how I feel today, but be historically, Jesus died. When we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love through the cross, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we can experience forgiveness and rest, rest in that relationship with God simply because of what God has done, not because of any work we could do to achieve that. So daily, practically, in those moments where we feel like, God, I feel insecure. Do you still love me? Do you still uh, want me as your child? Look to the cross and remind yourself of that truth and rest in God's finished work for us. So when God appears to be absent, worship him, trust in him, and rest in him. I started by telling you about that time at the, the museum where I lost Asher. What a traumatic event it was with a happy ending where we, we reunited and that was such a sweet moment. And now, it's been years later, but we, as, as we drive, our family will, will drive on 75 in our van. We'll look over a lot and we'll see the museum there and we'll say, hey, remember that time? Remember that time that Asher got lost and we found him? And God has taken that event, which was so unenjoyable uh, in the moment, and turned it into something good, a reminder to me of how kind God was to me in that moment, that I did find Asher, that we came back together. And it's like this, this it's like an Ebenezer. As we drive past there, we, we remember God was faithful, even though he felt absent in that moment. So 
As we go through life, when God feels absent, remember that he is not gone. He is working, he's doing something beautiful for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even in the moments where you feel so far, like the moment when Moses and Aaron were rejected by Pharaoh, that you are still at work. We may not understand it. We may not know what you're doing, but you are careful and loving in all you do. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength to trust in you, to worship you, and to rest in you, even when we don't know the end of the story, even when we don't know how it's going to end, to know that because of who you are, you are still faithful and kind. Thank you for what a great father you are to us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.